History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in Central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spooktacular people. Welcome to this 311th episode of the History Goes Bump podcast. Ghost tours for the theater of the mind. I am your host, Diane. On this episode, I'm going to be talking about a location that was suggested by listener Mike Stribal, who also happens to be an executive producer. He wanted to hear about the Weinkauf Hotel in Atlanta. And Kelly and I actually got to see this hotel in person while we were there over this past weekend. Before we get into that, I want to welcome into the Spooktacular crew, Ruben, Richard, Laura, Sarah with no H, Kelly with a Y, Kimberly, Erica, Heather, Isabel, Melissa, Ellen, Victoria, Summer, Justin, Amy, Patrick, Kathy with an I, Manuel, Brock, Ernie, and with an E, Mike, and Vanessa of the Fabled Podcast. I got to meet her over the weekend as well, and if you are not listening to that podcast, I highly recommend it. It's excellent. And now, this moment, Naughty. This moment, Naughty, was suggested by listener Janae McCabe, and it was not only suggested by her, it's about her family. Her grandfather was Roy Almerin Thomas. Roy was born on July 29, 1894, in Bay City, Michigan. When he was 23, he joined the U.S. Air Service and trained as an aviator flying the Curtis JN-4 Hisso Jenny-style airplanes. He would later find himself on the front lines during World War I, fighting alongside the British and French allies. Although he was fighting in the war, he found time to marry his sweetheart on July 10, 1918. And then tragedy struck. Roy went down in a plane and suffered a horrendous injury that left both of his legs badly broken. Doctors managed to repair his legs enough that he could walk again, but his joints would lock up with arthritis. He suffered a lot of pain. He was given the impossible decision by doctors to either have his legs set permanently in a laying down position or permanently sitting up and he would be confined to a wheelchair. He decided that a wheelchair was preferable to a bed and I would agree. He developed Bright's disease that eventually took his life at the age of 44 on April 23, 1939. There was one more hard decision to be made in Roy's life. The funeral home asked his wife what she wanted them to do when it came to Roy's legs. Should they break his legs so he could be buried lying down in a coffin? His wife was adamant that they not do that. Roy would never want to suffer through having his legs broken again, even in death. So the funeral home pulled all of the extra stuff out of the casket, and they were able to bury Roy in his coffin with his legs permanently bent. I think his wife honoring him in this way was wonderful, but you have to admit that being buried with permanently bent legs certainly is odd. Thanks so much for sharing that with us, Janae. Pull the covers up tight. That chill you feel isn't the air conditioning. <laughs> and now, this month in history. 
in the month of October, on the 14th in 1793, the trial of Marie Antoinette began in Paris, France. She was accused of several crimes and had already endured watching the execution of her husband, Louis XVI, and the removal of her eight-year-old son, Louis XVII, who was turned against her. There were some who wanted the former queen traded for prisoners, and others advocated for her exile to someplace like America, but the public was pushing back against monarchy with the French Revolution. Antoinette and her lawyers were given less than a day to figure out a defense. One of the egregious accusations was that she had committed incest with her son, and that accusation came from him after some coaching. Antoinette would not even respond to the charge. On July 16th, she was found guilty of treason, stealing money from the national treasury, and conspiracy against the security of the state. Her sentence was death. That execution took place that very day. She penned a letter to her sister, had her head shaved, put on a white dress, had her hands bound behind her back, and was driven for an hour in a cart to her place of execution. She remained composed the whole time, despite lots of jeering. She was guillotined a little afternoon and buried in an unmarked grave. She would later be exhumed and given a Christian burial. The Ellis Hotel sits along Peachtree Street Northwest in downtown Atlanta. The hotel hasn't always been the Ellis, and it has been refurbished many times. The original hotel here was the Weinkauf Hotel, and it was a grand place that dwarfed the other buildings. A devastating fire would change all of that in 1946. Over a 100 people would lose their lives in what has been dubbed the worst hotel fire in American history. Contractors can rebuild walls and slap on new paint, but they can't cover over the energy and residue left behind by such tragic circumstances. That residue seems to have fed paranormal activity, and there are experiences that people have shared throughout the years that just can't be explained. Join me as I share the history and hauntings of the Weinkauf Hotel. This is one of those episodes that is more scary or terrifying, not because of the ghost stories I'm going to share with you, but for the actual reality of what happened here. I would say if you have young listeners that usually listen with you, this may not be the episode for them. The city of Atlanta was initially called Marthasville, with a nickname of Terminus since it was founded in 1837 as the end of the Western and Atlantic Railroad line, and that Marthasville comes from the governor's daughter's name. They'd wanted to name it for him, but he didn't want them to do that, so I thought it was really cool that he's like, why don't we name it after my daughter, Martha? The name was eventually changed to Atlanta, of course, after the chief engineer of the Georgia Railroad suggested Atlantica Pacifica as a new name. Can you imagine Atlanta being called Atlantica Pacifica? I mean, at least Atlantica, I could see, but the rest of it is a bit long. Because Atlanta was such an important spot along the railroad, it became a major target of attacks by the Union during the Civil War. General Sherman would burn nearly everything in the city, except for the churches but it would rise from the ashes and become a prosperous city known for civil rights, black education, and, of course, Coca-Cola. It would be here that the Weinkauf Hotel would be built. Kelly and I visited the Ellis Hotel while we were in Atlanta for me to speak at a women's podcasting conference, and I'll talk a little bit about that after we get done with the bulk of the show. The building is beautiful on the outside with red and brown brick and concrete made to look like stone. 
The hotel stands 15 stories, and with all the modern skyscrapers around it, it's hard to believe that there was a time when this was actually the tallest structure in the area. Can you imagine Atlanta, the tallest building, being only 15 stories? The inside lobby is very small, and I would say not very unique. The place is a boutique hotel today, and I imagine the inside is nothing like it was when it was the Weinkauf Hotel. We initially went there so that I could see what the outside of it looked like. And many times when we go into these historic hotels, I'm just blown away by the interior. The Ellis Hotel did not blow me away at all. I would never know that this was a historic hotel by going inside of it. Of course, it was gutted by a fire, and we'll be talking about that in a moment. But turning this into a boutique hotel, it's just doesn't have that essence to it anymore. I took a picture of the chandelier that was inside, but it was one of those modern kind of had a lot of little light bulbs in it. And so it was unique, but not really what I like to see in a historic building. The lobby is teeny tiny compared to what you'd usually be used to with a hotel. The elevators are right to your left when you walk in and there's just a couple of them. And we really couldn't see any of the rest of the hotel because you, you had to go up the elevators to go anywhere. There were a set of stairs that we did climb for one story, but they led off into what looked like conference rooms. And I think there was a kitchen back there or something. I'm not sure. So there really wasn't much to see here, folks. That's the way I would put it. But apparently back in the day, it really was something to look at. The Weinkauf Hotel was built by William Fleming Weinkauf, for whom it is named. Architect William Lee Stoddard designed it and the Weinkauf officially opened in 1913. While the exterior was built solid with a steel frame and floors and roof of concrete, the inside was a complete fire hazard by our modern standards. The hallways and walls were covered with a painted burlap from the chair rails down to the baseboards. I can't imagine what this looks like. It must have looked kind of fancy. I would have never thought of burlap as a wall covering, I guess a type of wallpaper and then painting it. But imagine the fire hazard that would be. The walls above that were wallpapered. There was wall-to-wall carpeting everywhere, and most of the rooms had cloth drapes. A few had blinds, but for the most part, you've got cloth drapes. Weinkoff sold the hotel in 1937, but he continued to live in a 10th floor suite. There was an excitement in the air on the morning of December 7, 1946. People were in the city to see decorations and shop for Christmas gifts at places like Macy's and other stores. I believe Macy's was right next to the Weinkauf Hotel. There were almost 300 guests staying at the hotel, including those Christmas shoppers and teenagers attending a Tri-Y Youth Conference. What we have going on here, to kind of put you in the frame of mind that with what's going to happen with this tragedy in Atlanta, is think of America before September 11th, 2001, for those of you that are old enough to remember that. Everything was fine, right? We remember that morning. It was a beautiful day. Not a worry in the world for most people. You can have a time like this, and then something so tragic can happen that it forever changes a country in the case of 9-11, or what's going to happen here, change a city, Atlanta. People of Atlanta were about to witness one of the most tragic circumstances of a high-rise fire. People pushed to suicide. And that's why I use 9-11 as my example here. Because I think for a lot of us, we know that when people are put in an impossible decision where you're in a fire and the only way out is through a window and you're in this huge high-rise, you're going to die if you jump. But if you stay inside, you're going to suffocate either from smoke inhalation, which probably is going to be the case, or you're going to burn to death. 
And that's the kind of impossible decision that we're going to have here with this fire as well. And then, of course, many of us saw those people actually jumping to their deaths. We saw them holding hands in windows, preparing to jump together. We're going to have the same kind of thing happen with this fire here at the Weinkauf. So I just kind of wanted to paint a picture for you of what we're going to have happen here. Fire. It's a devastating thing, as so many people in California know right now. You've got fires just raging through there. It seems like every single year, California has these huge wildfires and thousands of homes are destroyed. A fire destroying a home is horrible for a variety of reasons. For most of us who own a home, we are financially invested. It's our number one asset. This is also the reason why people won't move out of a haunted house. We've heard that story time and again, haven't we? People say, why don't they move out of this incredibly haunted house? Well, if all your money is tied up into that house and now you have to disclose that that house is haunted, so your chances of selling it might be less depending upon the buyer, it's really hard for you to do that kind of thing. Homes are also our place of safety and almost everything we love and hold dear is inside of a house. You've got your pets, your family, your keepsakes, your pictures, memorabilia you've collected. I mean, everything you own and have that's important is in your house, pretty much. And a fire can take all that away in an instant. A fire is even worse when it strikes a structure like a hotel. And when a fire hit a building like a hotel in the days of no fire codes or safety regulations, it was incredibly deadly. You might recall that in episode 71, I detailed a fire in 1980 at the MGM Grand Hotel, and 85 people died. The Weinkauf had a similarly bad design. The two centrally located elevator shafts had a staircase that wrapped around them, and since the shafts were fire-resistant, the staircase would allow fire to climb steadily up all the floors. Even worse was the fact that the hotel had vertical ventilation shafts that would feed oxygen to a fire and help the flames rise to all 15 floors. Transoms above each room's door would allow smoke and flames easy access as well. There were no fire exits or fire stairs and no sprinklers. The Weinkauf was a sitting duck if a fire ever started. But as we've heard in regards to so many of these historical fires, the builders and city had deemed the hotel fireproof. This fireproof building would be the site of the worst hotel fire in American history. On duty in the wee hours of the morning were the night engineer, the bellhop named Belly Mobley, the female elevator operator who also served as a maid, and night clerk Comer Rowan. At 3.30 a.m., a guest rang asking for some ginger ale and ice to be brought up to the fifth floor. Rowan asked Billy to take the items up, and the engineer decided to join him as he needed to do his rounds. The elevator operator dropped them off and then took the elevator to the basement to prepare to do her nightly rounds, but about the third floor, she smelled smoke. She dropped off the elevator and went up to the main floor to tell Rowan that she thought she'd smelled smoke. Meanwhile, Billy and the engineer are waiting outside of room 510, for the guest to answer the door. Rowan told the elevator operator to go up and get the engineer while he investigated. He went up to the mezzanine and could see flames via a mirror, and he ran for the phone and called the fire department. They arrived around 3.45 a.m. with three ladder and four pumper companies. Billy and the engineer were unaware that anything was happening when the guest invited them inside their room. They closed the door behind themselves, and the group visited for a few moments, 
When they turned to leave, they found flames behind the closed door and quickly closed it again. Rowan returned to the front desk and began frantically calling every room, screaming, fire, 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 into the phone. He only got a few rooms before the switchboard went dead. That was it for a fire alarm. Most sleeping guests would have no idea the danger they were facing. By the time the firemen had themselves set up, the building was engulfed from the third floor all the way to the top. The ladders on the fire trucks could only reach to the eighth floor. Dragging out safety nets was not much help as they could only hold for jumps up to 70 feet away. Anyone above the eighth floor was probably going to die. There were no sprinklers to fight the flames, and the interior embellishments that I described for you earlier fueled the fire. The first person to appear on a ledge was a woman on the seventh floor. She pulled her two children out with her as the flames drove her from their room. She tossed both children out into the air. She then jumped but missed the net and got caught up in some wires. Her nightgown had been touched by flames and she was soon engulfed. Many, many people started coming out onto the ledges at this point. Some of them had knotted their sheets together to attempt to climb down from their windows, but clearly no sheet rope is going to be long enough to get them down to the ground. Now, there were a few that could get themselves down a couple of floors to reach where the fire truck's ladders were at. And so some people were saved in that way. But then there were other stories where they would have this sheet rope going down and flames would lick it and set it on fire and it would be no good. Or another person would attempt to get out on top of this rope before the other person got off. And obviously the sheets are not strong enough to hold both and they would just rip away. The firemen spent more time saving people than they did fighting the fire. That was what they saw as the most important thing they needed to take care of, was to save all of these people that were crawling out of the building like ants coming out of their anthill. So a few went into the inside to try to fight the fire from the interior, but most of them were dedicated to trying to save these people. They would shout to them up on the ledges, please don't jump, we will try to come and save you. But you can imagine if you're up on the 13th, 14th, 15th floor, What are your chances of being saved? There are a lot of people on the street that are watching this fire as well, and they're shouting, please don't jump. They're running around trying to find anything they can that they can use to try to catch people. But you can imagine if you try to stretch a sheet out, is that going to be able to catch somebody who's coming down with a velocity for 70 feet or more? A lot of people were trying to all hold safety nets together and the person would come flying down and it would be with so much force that it would just rip the net right out of their hands. And so it was no good for saving people. In many cases, people would jump to try to hit the nets and they would miss them by inches. I can only imagine what this scene must have been like. The panic, the fear, and then you are just watching people hitting the pavement all around you. I don't want to imagine it. Let me put it that way. Even more tragically, falling people killed others. We've talked about this when people have committed suicide jumping off of things and fallen on top of somebody. It happened on 9-11 as well when people were jumping out of windows and they would fall on top of somebody. In this case, there was a fireman. He had just saved someone, thrown this person over his back and was climbing down the ladder and somebody falling hit both of them and all three people were killed. 
Within minutes, all hands were on deck with the city of Atlanta's complete 60-piece fire department performing rescue operations outside of the Weinkauf Hotel. Hello out there. I'm Aaron Habel of Generation Y, and with me is Jack Luna of Dark Topic. We'd like to introduce you to Marooned, a new podcast that's sure to capture your attention. Tales of the catastrophically lost are what we have to offer. Hikers swallowed by the woods... Explorers discovering nothing but destitution. True crime calamity. Oddities of harrowing human experience. It's a museum of misadventure. Subscribe to Maroon wherever you find podcasts. We are waiting. Please hurry. Thank you. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. Now, we're talking a lot about this death and devastation, but there were people who did survive, and some of them in some of the most miraculous ways. A young boy was caught by a spectator. Another woman who jumped managed to survive her injuries. A couple on an upper floor crawled out onto the ledge and made their way to the room next to them that had a closed transom. So what had happened is the transom above their door was open. So all the smoke had come into their room. The flames are licking at the door. They know they've got to get out of here. They don't want to jump. So I guess they decided, let's take a chance and go to the room next to us. I don't know if there was some way they were communicating with each other. And they said, you know, we don't have any smoke over here. Come over here. I don't know. But they crawled over to this other room. And then both couples threw a mattress up against the door and they just kept it wet. They kept bringing in water. Thank God it kept running through their sink and the bathtub or whatever. And they just kept throwing it up on this mattress to keep it wet the whole time. And all four of those people survived. Another man was saved by going down a fire truck ladder. But one thing that he realized is that his mother was still up in her room, which had been next to his, and there was no way to save her. So what he did, he goes to the building that's right next door, and it's about 10 feet away. He goes up to the floor that they were staying on. I think it was the seventh floor. He finds this board that is long enough to go between the two buildings, and his mother is able to get out on that board and come across to the other building to safety. Even better, another couple saw this, and they came out on their ledge and were able to get across using that board as well. It really is a miracle. And definitely, if you're going across that board, don't look down. I can't even imagine what that must have been like because I'm afraid of heights. So firemen begged people to wait for rescue and many did listen as they perched on ledges outside windows. The firemen were true heroes with several having to be hospitalized for smoke inhalation later. They battled for six hours and then they had to take care of the dozens of dead bodies left in the building. Some were still in their beds never realizing that the building was engulfed in flames. Out of the 280, 285 people that were staying in the hotel that night, 119 of them died, including William Weinkoff, for who the building was named. 
The cause of the fire was never officially announced, with some saying it was an accident due to a dropped cigarette. But the running theory by most is that this was an intentional arson. I've heard lots of stories about what people think might have gone on here, but there's no one who knows for sure. Now, this isn't some kind of an arson where somebody goes, I want to burn this building down just because I want to burn a building down. There are people who think that there was some rival gang activity going on here, that there was some gambling going on, and that one person was angry at another person, and this was kind of their way to get back at them or something like that. So this wasn't really meant to burn down the whole inside of the hotel, but that's what ended up happening. No one was ever caught or tried for this. Despite this being a devastating fire, this would not be the end for the hotel. The Weinkauf would never return, but the building would stand and be renovated. I told you about that steel structure on the outside. It was fireproof on the outside. Unfortunately, you needed to be fireproof on the inside, too. So they had the skeleton or whatever. I guess the exoskeleton is really what we should call it. And so they were able to change out the innards and save this building. And of course, because of this fire, it would lead to new fire codes and regulations for all hotels that are still implemented to this day. Some of the key things are having fire alarms and sprinklers because they know that if they can suppress the fire as soon as it gets started, it's going to make it a lot easier to stop the fire. The building reopened in April of 1951 as the Peachtree Hotel on Peachtree. That hotel was successful for many years, and then it was donated to the Georgia Baptist Convention in 1964, and they used it as a type of nursing home. Then it passed through several hands with nothing really coming from any of that. There were a lot of developers who had ideas for what they wanted to do with it, but nobody ever did anything with it. Eventually, it just sat vacant, and that lasted for over two decades. In 2006, a multi-million dollar renovation was begun by RD Management under direction of the architects at Stevens & Wilkinson, Stang & Newdow, and Juno Construction Company. It opened in 2007 as the Ellis Hotel with 127 rooms, a fitness center, lounge, meeting spaces, business center, and cafe. And that is what it is today. It also seems to be home to many ghosts. Now, I'm going to preface what I'm going to tell you here with the fact that the Ellis Hotel has no interest in being known as a haunted hotel. They will not provide you with any information, and it's really hard to find anything out there. Many of the early stories of experiences with the unexplained came from contractors and construction workers who were doing all of these renovations. They claimed to hear footsteps and disembodied voices coming from areas of the building that were empty. Tools would go missing or be moved. After guests started staying in the hotel, more reports came out that included not only the same experiences as the workers, but there were also the cries in the middle of the night, the sounds of people running in the hallways, and the smell of smoke. Many guests on upper floors would get really angry about all the noise in a hotel that they were paying a lot of money to stay at. They'd go down to the front desk and complain about all those children running in the hallways or all those people carrying on in the hallways, and the staff would be like, um... I don't know why we would have had all these people running around up there because either the hotel was not full to capacity, so there wasn't enough people to be up there. There weren't children staying on that floor. They just had no way to explain why there would be all this noise. There are a few staff who will talk about some of the experiences that they've had, and it seems the most common thing is getting these calls from rooms that are empty. So the phone will ring. They'll think somebody's asking for them to bring something up. 
when they answer the phone, there's nothing there but static. Then they'll look in their computer to see who's checked into that room and they'll find out there's nobody there. And then there are the faces. Many people have reported seeing faces peering out from the windows. And while we could dismiss that as just being living people, obviously this is a working hotel, most of these reports happened when the building was abandoned. Security would be called out to chase away squatters and they would find no one. Police would come, search the building, nobody would be inside. And something that really ties into the fire is that occasionally the fire alarm will go off in the early hours of the morning at the same time that the actual fire had started back in 1946. While I was in Atlanta, I picked up one of the books that I collect from the Haunted America series, and this was by Reese Christian, and it's The Ghosts of Atlanta. She shares a paranormal experience in there that I thought I would share with you guys. A man named Bill Bryson was a bus driver for Smoky Mountain Trailways. His company permanently rented out a room on the ninth floor for their drivers to catch some sleep between drives. Bill was always uncomfortable in the hotel because he had a fear of fire. It seems that many generations of his family had suffered loss at the hands of fire. His own parents' home had recently burned to the ground before the Weinkauf fire, so it definitely was something that was on his mind. While it would just be superstitious or paranoid to think that a fire would affect him too, Bill had another reason for this fear. He'd had a premonition that he would die at 28 years old because of a fire. He was in the Weinkauf when it caught fire. The building next door was only 10 feet away, and so, like many other people, he thought he could possibly jump to safety. You know, 10 feet doesn't look that far if you get a running start. You think maybe you could make it. But unfortunately, it's just really not humanly possible for most people. And for Bill, he was wrong about being able to make that jump. He leapt, missed, and fell into an alley between the two buildings an alley that would soon be littered with bodies. This alley would just have body upon body upon body by the time the fire was put out. And there were actually so many bodies in that alley that there were a few people that managed to survive their fall or jump or whatever it was they were doing because there was all of this, I don't want to call it padding in the alleyway, but the bodies cushioned them. So he didn't burn up in the fire, but it was because of the fire that he did indeed die when he was 28 years old. The hotel, as I said, is reluctant to share ghost stories. This is an elite hotel with no time for those kinds of stories. But how could a building that was a setting for such a horrific event not have some kind of issue with paranormal residue? Is the Weinkauf Hotel, now the Ellis Hotel, haunted? That is for you to decide. I don't know much about the pricing at the hotel or what the rooms are like. I hear it's awfully nice. So it could be an option if you want to stay in the heart of Atlanta's downtown. It's definitely a really cool building on the outside. And I can tell you just from a tourism point, if you are riding around on the MARTA, there's a station that's right there underneath it. So you can get around real easy from that hotel. And it's very close to a lot of things. You can walk down to the Olympic Park, which is what we did after we visited the hotel. And the CNN building's over there. Coca-Cola's over there. So it's a a great place to stay if you want to check out the city. I'd love to have you guys check out the website at historyghostbump.com. And if you want to send me some feedback, you can do that at historyghostbump at gmail.com. Lisa wrote me an email and she said, So I had my eight-year-old nephew living with me for a while. One night I woke up at 3 a.m. Something told me to go check on him. 
When I walked out of my bedroom door, I smelled coffee. It was strong. And just to let you know, I have a Keurig, not a coffee pot. And nobody else drinks coffee in my family but me. I know I'll never know who that was. But I do know that the little guy would often have night terrors. And I wonder if that's why. And when I asked her a little bit further, I wanted to know, is this a new build for you? Was this an older house? Had you experienced hauntings there before? Somebody else who'd lived there? experienced anything? And she replied back to me that the house was built in 1960 or 1970 and that she doesn't actually feel that the house is haunted. She just thinks that something or someone was visiting her nephew. So it does make you wonder if somebody had come by and made themselves a cup of ghostly coffee or something. I don't know. But interesting story. We're getting ready to do an investigation of the St. Augustine Lighthouse this coming weekend. Looking forward to doing that. And of course, we will be bringing that to you guys who are over at the History Ghost Bump Losers Club. We'll have some live video. If we get some results, I imagine we'll have an upcoming episode about that. While we were in Atlanta, we not only checked out the Weinkauf Hotel, but we also did a couple of ghost tours. Had a great time doing those. I'm going to bring you some episodes about those as well. I just want to thank the listeners who joined us. I know Tammy and Brian drove down from Tennessee and Christy came with her family and they had to drive about an hour to meet up with us. And I am so honored when listeners do that, whether you come to a ghost tour or a live show, I just really appreciate it. And this leads me into talking about She Podcasts Live. I was asked to speak there and the panel that I was asked to be a part of was going to share with a lot of these independent podcasters out there how to host a live show. Now, generally when there are speakers at these conferences, there are people that are, I don't know how to put this, they're kind of the muckety-mucks in the podcasting world. They have a lot of followers or these really big shows and things like that. And I was in communication with the other two women that I was going to be on this panel with, and then there was a moderator. And just based on the way that everybody was talking, I was like, well, gosh, I don't feel like I have a whole lot to share because these people are getting paid to do live shows. Like, And when I say that, I mean, they don't have to put up any money to do any of the stuff. They're being paid to come and speak, which doesn't happen when I'm part of a live show. Let me just put it that way. And then there was another woman who does these events and she does them around the world and all this stuff. And so they have all these things they're talking about. And I'm thinking, well, I'm just a little guy on the totem pole here, I don't know that I'm going to have that much to share. And I found out that I had a lot to share with independent podcasters. And a lot of it's because of you guys, the community that has grown around this podcast. I say it all the time. It's the thing that I love the most about this podcast and the thing I did not expect at all. I thought I'd have a few people listening. And even if you get people listening, you don't expect this community to grow around you of people who want to be a part of each other's lives, who get together and hang out with each other. And then they want to come meet you and stuff too. There was a young lady out in the audience and she'd asked a question when we had the Q&A afterward. And she'd asked, how do you guys get people to come to live shows? What's the incentive? That kind of thing. The first woman was talking about how she would get this swag together and have swag bags and offer all this stuff for people. The next woman had said something along the same kind of lines and what the different things that they would have to offer people and that there would be this advertising, like they would do something at a performing arts center so that they would do all this advertising to pull in the people from the city to come see this show and all this other stuff. And then they got to me and I'm thinking about you guys and I'm like, well, all I have for my information 
is what has happened in my own experience. And I thought that the answer was so obvious when this podcaster had asked that question. I couldn't believe the other women didn't see how obvious the answer was. And I just looked out at everybody and I said, your listeners are coming to a live show for you. You are what they want to hear. You're the person they want to talk to. They want to meet. They want to get a picture with. So that's why when I do a live show, I go, I, I actually go around to everybody and talk to them and thank them for coming and get pictures with them. Because I know that's one of the reasons why you're coming. You can listen to me do a show in your ears anytime you want. You're coming to a live show to meet me or the other podcasters that I'm doing it with as well. To me, it's a no-brainer. And I can guarantee you that you will never, ever, ever pay extra at any live show that I'm a part of for VIP treatment. In my book, you are all VIPs. Whether you give to the show, you don't give to the show, None of that matters to me. If you've come to see me, I am going to give you some one-on-one attention. You do not have to pay extra for that. With that being said, be watching for the plans that we have coming in 2020, the trips that we have planned, the investigations we have planned. I already know that I'd said, oh, I'm not really interested in doing these live shows anymore, but I'm already working on a couple of those too. So be watching for those details to be coming want to thank you guys for tuning in to this episode. I've been your host, Diane. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers. Dispatches from the Grave Digger. We want to welcome back into the graveyard, Karen Wickham. You'll be getting your spot back on the niche wall. I want to thank Chelsea Flowers for increasing her support. We are now going to be moving you into a garden tomb. And welcome into the cemetery, Michael Heflin, you'll be getting a spot on the niche wall. Caitlin Curry, you will be buried under a marble headstone. And Rachel Shepard, we're going to be putting you in a chest tomb. Thanks so much for your support. Fan of the show? Subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast catcher. Valentine's Day, Dunkin's got the perfect pairings to show your love. So get down on one knee with a dozen brownie batter donuts and a cocoa mocha signature latte. Or make them swoon with a strawberry dragon fruit Dunkin' refresher with a Cupid's Choice Donut. Are you ready for love? America runs on Dunkin'. Price and participation may vary. Limited time offer.